Hi, well, what's up, y'all? It's great to see everyone back after a break that feels like it's been about two months long. I don't know if it's felt the same way for y'all, but I guess with the choppiness of the way the last quarter ended, from having a few days off and then a few days back and then really just a few more days off, it's just been really, really choppy. But y'all, I'm glad to be back. I don't know what all you got to do over your break. Hopefully it was restful. My break wasn't particularly restful, even though I enjoy ski trip, it usually wears me out. But I'm excited to be back and excited to start a new quarter. Um, if I haven't got to meet you yet, my name is Merrick, and I do have the pleasure of being the college pastor here at First. Would love to get a chance to meet you. My wife, Emily, is right over here, and uh, we'd love to get a chance to meet you and get to know you if we have not yet. So anyway, just want you all to know we're excited to have you all here. You all, as we're starting this quarter, if you're here with us this last quarter, January and February, we did a series called Unfiltered. And really, my plan was to continue through Unfiltered, honestly, through March, and then have a different series as we get ready for Easter and then even following Easter. But as I've gotten back, one, I feel like we've been so disconnected from three weeks ago. But two, I really feel like the Lord has stirred my heart to do um, a particular sermon series on the gospel. And I feel like I've had this stirring for a while now. Y'all, I get a chance to talk with a lot of college students, and I enjoy that. It's a lot of fun. And what I find with a lot of times if I'm talking to college students, our conversations come back to a few different topics. And one of them has a lot to do with the gospel in general. So I know this is kind of a buzzword in the Christian circle, right? The word gospel. I feel like we talk about gospel and we hear about gospel often. But I really think this series is one needed for the non-believer and the believer alike, but it's also profitable for us to continue to return to the foundation of our faith, of which this is the cornerstone, right? This is the foundation upon which everything in the Christian life needs to be built. So we're about to start a series called The Gospel, and over the next four weeks, we're going to look at four different things. One is going to be the gospel explained. Next week, we'll look at the gospel accepted. In three weeks, we'll look at the gospel applied, and then the week before Easter, we'll look at the gospel confirmed. And so as we look at these different things, we're going to look and see how, one, what the gospel is, but then also how it applies to our lives continually um, as we're followers of Jesus. So for tonight, it's the gospel explained. And really tonight, the whole point of tonight is to answer one question. It's this, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? That's the whole goal. The main purpose for tonight is to answer what is the gospel? And y'all, I ask people this all the time. I even have this in my leadership interview, and and I find a lot of different information that comes back. Now, there's a lot of different ways you can explain the gospel, but the gospel in its essence should be fairly simple for us to explain. And so what I want for you tonight is, is maybe tonight you're not sure where you're at with the Lord. This message is for you. Maybe tonight you can say, you know what, I know I'm a follower of Jesus. Well, guess what? This message also is for you. And y'all, hopefully, if you know Jesus, this will at least give you a paradigm of how can you share it, how can you share God's message effectively. And so anyway, the question, what is the gospel? And it's this, the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. To put it quite simply, y'all, the word gospel means good news. That's exactly what it means, good news. So whenever we talk about the gospel of Jesus, it's the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, I've heard people say, well, the gospel is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Well, those are called the gospels, meaning that's where the gospel is shared. That's where the gospel message is told. The story of Jesus is told in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So those are gospels, but the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ. And what I like about even starting by sharing it like this is whenever you have good news, Typically, you also have what whenever you have good news? You have bad news, right? Everybody knows that. Everybody's had somebody come and talk to them and say, hey, so I've got good news and I've got bad news. And they typically ask you, which one do you want first? 
right? I'm a bad news, good news type guy. You tell me the good news first, I'm just going to be thinking, you know, about the bad news the whole time. So go ahead and give me the meat, then we'll go to the bread, right? So bad news, good news type guy. Well, whenever it comes to the gospel, we have to get the bad news first. We have to understand what the bad news is to recognize why we even need good news. But the best thing about understanding this good news is whenever you put your faith in the good news, the bad news becomes old news and it changes everything. And so what is the gospel? It's a bad news, good news story. And we're going to be looking in Ephesians chapter two. So if you have your Bible with you, Ephesians chapter two. We'll be in Ephesians chapter two. We'll be looking at verses one through nine tonight. I know this is a popular passage. But one of the reasons it is so popular in sharing the gospel is Paul is talking to a church. He's talking to a group of people who have believed in the gospel. They've placed their faith in Jesus Christ, but they're struggling to actually live this out. And he spends the first three chapters of Ephesians reminding them who they are in Christ, reminding them what has happened to them because of Christ, reminding them of what they need to do because they're in Christ. And then chapters four through six, he shows how the gospel and theology is applied and needs to be applied in their lives in verses four through six. So we're going to be focused on Ephesians chapter two, and we'll be looking at verses one through nine. Now, once again, before we jump in, we need to recognize that these people are followers of Jesus. So whenever he's speaking of past tense, he's going to be talking about the human condition. When he speaks of who they are now in Christ, he's speaking to them as followers of Jesus. You'll understand as we read this a little bit more. So just so you know kind of the outline of tonight, and I don't think my notes actually are coming up. Maybe they didn't get pulled over. But this is a bad news, good news passage in that we're going to look at three points regarding bad news that Paul lays out. And then next, we're going to look at three points regarding good news that Paul lays out. And so three points regarding the bad news and three points regarding the good news. So the first is this. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 2, look at verse 1. It says this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You know, the first point of the bad news is this, is that we are completely sinful. We are completely sinful, utterly sinful, totally sinful. He starts off by saying that, remember, you were dead in your trespasses and your sins. Y'all, we're going to spend a little bit of time here because I find that whenever I talk with people, this is the hardest point to get home to people. I mean, even me in general, before I became a believer, it's hard to help people understand that they are completely, apart from Christ, they are completely dead in their sins. And so the first question you have to define, you got to define a few things here is, is what actually is sin? Well, the word sin actually just means to miss the mark. It means to miss the mark. It's like this. I don't know if y'all did this, but I remember whenever I was in school, you're still in school, I had in my notebook, if I ever was writing notes or something like that and I messed up, I would always tear the piece of paper out of the notebook and then I would cleanly go and place it in the trash can. That's what everybody does, right? Not at all, right? You typically crumple it up and you yell Kobe or some other thing and shoot it at the trash can, right? Now, if you're shooting it at the trash can, there's one goal. It's to make it in the trash can. It doesn't matter if you hit the rim, if you hit the wall, if you hit the teacher, if your friend swats it back in your face. If you miss, then you miss the mark. And this is the idea of what sin is, is there is a goal, a certain way that we're supposed to live, but we miss the mark. When we miss the mark, that's what sin actually is. Well, even by saying what sin is, the the question comes up, well, who gets to set the mark? Who gets to decide how we're supposed to live? Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. 
For all have sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. In other words, God gives us a standard of how we're supposed to live and sin is us not living the way that he tells us we're supposed to live. For all have sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. We all have missed the mark. Now y'all, whenever I typically talk to people about this, specifically people from the South who are raised in a very moralistic society, I typically get some rebuttals or I have people ask questions. They're like, well, Merrick, I don't think you understand. I don't do a lot of the big sins. Like, I don't do all those big sins. You know, I sin some, but there's a lot of things that I don't do. Compared to other people, I'm really not that bad. Y'all, this was even me growing up. Is I'm, I'm not a great guy, but I'm, I'm a pretty good guy. I had this idea that I could, I could honestly fool myself into thinking I was a pretty good guy. But what you have to understand is that it doesn't matter how much we think we sin. It doesn't matter how big or small our sin is. That isn't what makes us completely sinful. It's the fact that we do sin that separates us from God. It's not big, small, wide, large, whatever. It's the fact that you do sin that separates you from God. See, something that we have to understand about sin is sin taints the whole body. It taints all of us. The Bible even says that even our good works are somehow marred by our sin. Not because of how much it is, but the fact that we do sin, it taints our whole bodies. We're completely sinful. Let me explain it like this. How many of y'all in here like dogs? Raise your hand. Okay, a good bit of people like dogs. How many of y'all in here like cats? Just, just off, the, off the cuff there. That really doesn't matter at the moment. But anyway, we've got, I grew up in a time whenever dogs and me never really worked out very well. We had a German shepherd that lived, lived across the road that attacked me one time. We had a German shepherd that lived beside me that attacked me one time. And all three dogs that I had as a child, something very bad happened to them. I'll spare you the details. I shared it one time to a youth group and half of them like cried. Like I was really scarred very early on by my experience with dogs. So I had no desire to have an animal or a pet. Whenever Emily and I got married she always grew up with pets and she wanted to get a dog so basically we kind of found this mutual agreement where we'd get something like a dog and we have an animal about this big that I think's a dog but it's a Maltese so it's a really 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 small dog um, but we have it now well I want you to imagine this if you were to come over to my house let's say I were to invite 15 people over now if I invite 15 people over to my house we're going to be snuggling pretty much because it's not a very big house and we've had people over, big groups over before, where a lot of times if you're going to eat at our house, you're going to sit on the floor. You may sit on the couch, but a lot of times you have to sit on the floor. And so I want you to imagine this scenario, that you and a group of people are over at my house, we're eating, we got pizza, we got sweet tea. You grab your pizza and sweet tea, or you see one of your friends get theirs, and they go and they sit down in my house. I want you to imagine as you're sitting there and you're eating, you notice my dog walk over, lift up a leg, and pee a little bit in their sweet tea. Now, I know some of you are thinking, okay, where is this going? Now, you as a friend what would you do? I know what most of you do. You wouldn't say anything. You would go, I'm about to get this thing right here and get it. Like, right? <laughs> most of you aren't very good friends. You'd be like, put it on your phone and trying to put it out there somewhere or whatever. But if you were a good friend, what would you do? You would go and you would say something to them. If it was me and I saw it, it'd be embarrassing one because it's my dog, but I would walk over and I would say, hey, so this is kind of an awkward situation, but my dog just peed into your sweet tea. Now, do you want to know what the person would not say back to me? They wouldn't say, okay, how much pee are we talking about? Like, was this just a little bit? Was this a lot of bit? Was this a stream? Like, was this just like mark my territory? Like, what was this? Nobody would say that, right? Because why? Because it doesn't matter how much pee it would be. Even a little bit of pee, even a drop would make you not want to drink it, right? It would taint the whole drink. It wouldn't matter if we had a gallon of sweet tea. If a dot of my dog's pee, I'm done. I'm out, right? I'm pouring it out. And you know, the whole point of me even sharing that is this. 
The fact that you sin at all taints every bit of you. The fact that you and I sin at all taints all of us. And the truth is, is we'll see how Paul starts to work this out. He says, all of us are dead in our trespasses and our sins, meaning we miss the mark. We are completely sinful. In our eyes, we may see I'm actually a fairly good person, but that's whenever we compare ourselves to people, not when we compare ourselves to God's standard. When we compare ourselves to God's standard, we recognize we fall utterly short. And no matter how much sin you and I have in our lives, we are utterly and completely sinful. So how are we dead in our sin? Look at how Paul makes his argument. Verses two and three, he says, you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Then he says, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now that seems confusing, but I'll explain that in a minute. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Notice what he says there. First, he says that we all were following the course of this world. And he kind of explains it a little bit more down further. He says, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. In other words, we all lived for our own desires, for the course of this world, for the things that the world tells us is gonna bring us happiness and joy and fulfillment and satisfaction and purpose. And then he says that we follow after, after this spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, the prince of the power of the air, this is actually the devil. And so you read this at first, you're like, okay, wait a minute. If I'm not a follower of Jesus, you're saying that I'm a worshiper of the devil? No, that's not what it's saying. It's saying you follow him. Now I want you to follow me real quick and hopefully we'll make sense of that. So he says we follow the course of this world. We follow the things of this world. First John 2, 1 John 2, 15 through 17 really breaks this down. And basically, John is talking, he says, look, everything that's in the world is not from God. It's not from him. You don't need to love this world or anything that's in the world. And he says, for everything that's in the world, and he gives us three categories, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world's passing away along with its desires. But those who do the will of God abide forever. Yo, what's interesting is John in that one verse, 1 John 2, 16, tells you and me how you and I will be tempted any time in our lives, in every single way in our lives. It will fall under one of the three categories of, of the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, or the pride of life. Let me explain. Rick Warren does a great job of explaining this via how we are tempted, and he basically explains it something like this. The desires of the flesh is the desire for pleasure. It's this temptation to feel it's this idea that if I could just feel this way, then I would be happy. If I could just feel this way about my body, if I could just feel this way regarding laziness, or even with entertainment, if I could feel this way regarding sports, if I could feel this way, which leads me towards sexual things or lust or pleasure in that regard, if I could feel this way, then I would be happy. It's this temptation to feel, which is a lie. The desires of the eyes is this temptation to have. It's not about pleasure, it's about possessions. It's just that if I had that thing, then I would be happy. If I had that job, if I had that car, if I had those clothes, you can even put this in relationships. If I had that boyfriend or girlfriend, then I would be happy. Then I would be filled. Then I would be satisfied. The desires of the eyes. So we see temptation to feel, temptation to have. And then the last is the pride of life. And this is the temptation to be. It's this idea that if I could just become this, then I would be happy. 
If I could just be known, then I would be happy. If I could just have this many followers, if I could just have this much popularity, if I could just become this in my field of study, if I could just be this regarding my grades, if I could become this, then I would be happy. And y'all, it's a lie. This is the course of this world. These are the desires that are naturally within us, thinking that if we, if we could get this pleasure, this possession, or, or this pursuit of the world, then somehow we would be happy, and it's just not true. You know, interestingly enough, if you go all the way back to the beginning, in Genesis chapter 3, go read Genesis 3, 6 sometime. And what you'll notice is whenever the devil is tempting Eve to eat of the fruit, it says that she falls prey to three things. She sees that the, that the fruit looks good. She sees that it would be desirable to eat and she sees that it would make her wise. You know what three categories that all fell under? The desire of her flesh, the desire of her eyes, and the pride of life. This idea that this looks good, it will make me feel good. Or I need to have this, or if I get this, then I'm gonna be wise like God. Yo, what's interesting is the devil hasn't changed his method at all. And we still continue to fall for this. And this is what Paul is trying to say here is we all fall for the lies of the world and who is the father of all lies? It's the devil. How do we follow after the prince of the power there? How do we follow after the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience? How do we follow after the devil? Because once again, that makes us go, wait, what? The devil is the father of all lies and every sin is a lie that you and I can please ourselves better than God can. And so as you follow the course of this world, in essence, you're following the way that began whenever the devil rebelled against God. And so tempted Eve to, and so gave to Adam to do so, in whom we are born running after sin with a sinful nature. Notice what else he says in verse three. He says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Y'all, what I love about this is Paul gives nobody an out. He wants to make sure that all of us understand that we are born dead in sin. We are born with this sinful nature, this sinful desire that runs from God rather than to God. And all of mankind is in this boat. Y'all, hear me again. I said I'd spend more time here because I still think that even in saying this, people struggle to really believe that this is where they're at. So I want you to think of it like this. If you were just to put a minor grid of God's standard and how you and I stand up, you'd see very quickly that we don't measure up. How many of you in here have ever told a lie? Raise your hand. If you're not raising your hand, you're telling a lie right now. So there you go. Now you can raise your hand. You're welcome. What does the Bible call somebody who lies? A liar, right? This should get, I'm guessing, most everybody in the room. How many of you have ever cheated on a test or in homework? And don't give me the, it was an online test. It didn't count. Like, I get that, all right? How many of you ever cheated on a test, right? So what does the Bible call you? A cheater, right? How many of you have ever taken something that wasn't yours? Yeah, you know what the Bible says? It means you're a thief, right? How many of you have ever lusted after somebody? You know what the Bible says? You're an adulterer. How many of you have ever been really angry with someone else? Jesus says you're like a murderer. Y'all, we're 0 for 5 and that's just getting started, Right? Our problem isn't just that we don't do the things that, or that we do the things we're not supposed to do. Our problem is that we also don't even do the things we know we're supposed to do. How many of us know we're supposed to put other people before ourselves and how many of us actually do it? You know, the more you put up God's standard, the more you will recognize you fall flat on your face in every single regard. 
It doesn't matter if it looks like the really awful sinner who does this, that, and the other. He is in no, he or she is in no more need of Jesus than you and I are. Morality doesn't somehow pretty us up before God. If anything, sometimes it can blind us from the true status of where we really are. We are completely sinful. All of us need God. I love this quote by C.S. Lewis. I've said it many times. No one knows how bad off they really are until they try their very best to be really, really good. Just go a day without thinking one bad thought, without saying one off-color thing, without acting a wrong way, without indulging and calling something enjoyable that probably is sinful. Y'all, we are utterly sinful. That's the bad news, the first part. The second part of the bad news is this. Not just that we're completely sinful, but number two, our sin separates us from God. Number two, our sin separates us from God. Y'all, whenever we talk about who we are, what our status is before we come to know Jesus, the Bible uses a lot of words that it uses like synonyms. This idea of being dead is one of those terms. But if you go just even further down in chapter two, verse 12, he says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope without God. If you go over to the book of Colossians, it says in chapter two that we were dead before we came to know Christ. But in 121, it says also before you came to know Christ, you were alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, in need of reconciliation. Isaiah 59.2 says verbatim, your iniquities have created a barrier between you and God, a separation between you and God. It's this idea that our sin has created this impenetrable wall between us and God. And there's nothing we can do to go around it, under it, or over it. We put the wall there. And so whenever we talk about being dead, y'all, one of the big meanings of this is we are separated from God. Our sin doesn't, we're not just dead in our sin, but our sin separates us from having a relationship with him. And now you may ask, okay, so how does our sin actually separate us from God? Well, it all comes back to this, y'all. God is holy, completely. If you, you and I can't even imagine. You just read the Old Testament accounts where people come face to face with God. All they can do is fall on their face and they're not even face to face with him. They're in front of his glory or they're at the bottom of his throne and they can't even stand Now, the truth is, is no sin can be in the presence of a holy God. It's impossible. I've told y'all this before. Think of it like this. It's not the exact same, but think of it regarding the sun. The sun is extremely hot, right? 90 million miles away from us, yet we still can get burnt by it. And it's 90 million miles away. If you and I were to get closer to the sun, we would die, right? We would burn up because the sun is unbearably and extremely hot and we just aren't right? Now, would we die getting closer to the sun because the sun is bad? No, it has nothing to do with the goodness or badness of the sun. It's the fact that the sun is so uniquely different from us, we cannot get close to it. And not the same way, but in much of the same way, y'all, God is holy. And because we are sinful, we cannot be in his presence. Because we are sinful, we cannot have a relationship with God. Our sin separates us from him. But it's not because of God, it's because of us. So the bad news is we're completely sinful. The second part of that is our sin separates us from God. And the third part of that is that the cost of our sin is death. The cost of our sin is death. Now Romans 6.23 says clearly, for the wages or the payment of sin is death. 
You see here in verse three, he doesn't leave this out. He says, all of us were by nature children of wrath. What does that mean? It means we're under God's wrath. It means that we have rebelled against him. It means that by nature, we deserve to spend the rest of our life separated from God. And y'all, you can't really explain the bad news until you really get here and you recognize the cost or the payment of our sin is eternal separation away from God. And now hear me, this isn't just some physical, this is soul, this is spiritual, this is the rest of your life without him, all of eternity without him. Hell is bad for a lot of reasons, but I would very much so go to the point of saying that the worst part of that is that you're not gonna be with God. You're not gonna be with Jesus. And that's the cost of sin, is eternal separation away from God. And y'all, this is the bad news. And the truth is, this could have been the only news This could have been the end of the story. This could have been it, right? God has no reason because of us to come after us and do anything about this, but he chose to do so, which is where we get the good news of Jesus Christ. The good news of Jesus Christ. And the first point of that is this, is that God loves us too much to leave us in our sin. The first part of the good news is that God loves us too much to leave us in our sin. If you just start verse four, It says, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love. Y'all, verse four starts with just this almost, it's almost like there's superhero music in the background. Like you know something is happening. The bad news of who we are and what we deserve, but then you see, but God. But God, he's gonna do something about it. And y'all, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to, I've heard this talk. You know, if God's so loving, how can he be a wrathful God? If God's so loving, how could he send people to hell? If God is so loving, then how could he whatever? But the problem is, is we get stumped by the wrong question. What should stump us here is not the wrath of God, but the love of God. What should stump us here is not the fact that people who ultimately just rebel against him, he lets them go their own way, which ultimately will lead them to eternity without him. What should shock us about God is that he doesn't just let them go. What should shock us about God is that he chose to intervene. Because of his great love with us, the wrath of God shouldn't be what shocks us. It should be the love of God. Of how could he love people who continually turn and run from him? Look at verse four through seven. It says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What we see is God loved us so much he gave two things. We see his mercy and we see his grace. Now many of you growing up in an area where you probably have heard these terms defined before. Mercy is not getting something that you deserve. Grace is getting something that you don't deserve. So think of it like this, mercy is like this. If you were to walk into class next week sometime and everybody were to turn in papers and you were to think in the back of your mind, oh, we had a paper due today. I'm sure that's never happened to anybody in here. I didn't realize we had a paper due today. And you go up to the teacher afterwards and you say, hey, I'm sorry, I completely forgot. Mercy would be your teacher not giving you what you deserve, which would be a zero, right? You deserve a zero, right? You didn't do the paper. Now, grace would be him or her saying, you know what? I'm gonna give you an extra week to complete it. 
Or supreme grace looking more like what we're talking about. You know what? Don't worry about it. I'm going to give you an A because I'm going to write the paper for you. Which, trust me, don't ever bank on that. That's never going to happen. This is preaching. This isn't, you know, like reality in some ways out there, okay? This is just an analogy. And y'all, this is what much of what, well, what Paul is trying to say, but God, because of his mercy, he didn't give us what we deserve. Because of his grace, he is offering something that we don't deserve. And so the question even of the text is, what did God do? How did he show us his mercy and his grace? Well, look at who Jesus highlights. I mean, who God highlights in this passage. Start with verse five. It says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and you were raised up with Christ and you seated us with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Y'all, God, Paul is highlighting that God did something spectacular and miraculous through the work of a man named Jesus Christ. His mercy and his grace was shown to us through Jesus Christ. And the question would be, well, what did he do? What did he do through Jesus, which leads to the second part of the good news? First, God loves us too much to leave us in our sin. And then secondly, God sent Jesus to save us from our sin. God sent Jesus to save us from our sin. So the bad news tells us that we're separated from God and unable to work back to him. But the good news is that God sent Jesus to us to rescue us from our sin. As many of you know, we just got back from ski trip and it would be wrong just to come back from ski trips as I talked about a lot before to not actually have a story after I come back, though this story isn't from this year. Um, this is our fourth year to be able to go on ski trip and y'all usually every year we come back, we have some interesting stories, some weird stories, some crazy stories or whatever. Um, but one story I know that I'll never forget from our ski trip experience has happened my second year with a guy named Garrison Bundy, if you may know him. And so basically what happened is, some of you know this story, is it was the third day, the very last day that we're there. It was the last run of the day. I tell everybody to meet us in the lodge at 420. And I remember I did my last run. I got in the lodge and I thought we were clean. Like that year we took 63, no injuries, no sickness, except for one. I guess Jesse, I kind of he think, think he got hit with an altitude sickness. But, but for the most part, it was a pretty flawless trip. Well, I remember I get back to the lodge and I walk upstairs and I met with a few guys who say, hey, we have no idea where Garrison is. And in my mind, this sounds bad, but I was like, he's all right. Like, he'll be fine. He'll make it back. It's Garrison. I mean, literally, he can do anything, right? Like, he's special forces guy. He'll be okay. He's probably like climbing a tree or something right now. And so I walked on past them and walked towards the back and Angelie Bundy, his cousin, actually was there. And you could tell she was fairly distraught. And I was like, hey, what's wrong? She's like, we don't know where Garrison is. I was like, well, tell me what happened. And she goes, well, all of us were going down this part of the mountain and we all turned, but Garrison just went straight. Which year one, Garrison didn't know how to slow down or turn. That's very problematic whenever it comes to skiing. He has gotten better though, I'll give him that. Um, but anyway, so I'm like, okay, I need to call ski patrol at this point, obviously. So I remember I call ski patrol, this nice lady answers, and I'm like, hey, I got a guy who's missing. She goes, well, where is he missing? I told her about where it was. It's over by an area called Waterfall Gully. Waterfall Gully is a frozen waterfall. Yeah, so that's where he went missing. So put two and two together, most likely. Anyway, so I tell her, I'm like, he got lost over there. And she said, okay, I'll notify ski patrol. Y'all went 60 seconds later, I get a phone call from ski patrol. And it's probably one of the weirdest phone calls I've ever gotten. I said, hello? And this guy with a deep voice, is this Merrick? I said, yes. He goes, we found your guy. We're bringing him in. Click. 
And I was like, oh my gosh, he's dead. Like literally my first thought is I was like, you don't say anything other than we found him, we're bringing him in. You don't give us anything. Well, sure enough, I'm nervous as I can be until the lady calls me back and says, hey, we found Garrison. I said, okay, good. I said, so he's all right. She goes, yeah, we couldn't find his skis or his ski poles or anything, but we found him. I was like, dang, what happened, Garrison? So anyway, he comes up on the snowmobile. First thing he says to me, he goes, Merrick, I thought I was about to be a statistic. I was like, yeah, I get it. He's like, no, you don't get it. Like at one point I tried to climb up the mountain and I just couldn't. Like, if you get deep enough in the woods, in snow, your arms, literally, if you try and climb in it, your arms will go straight in. And there was a lot of snow that year. And he said, I couldn't go up, so the only way was down. He said, then I fell all the way down, and then I couldn't get up. I didn't know where I was at or anything. And he said, at one point, I hit a low point, and I started screaming for help. And I was like, man, I wish I could have been there to see that. (laughs) But the whole point of what I'm trying to say is this, y'all. Whenever I think of that story, and I guess maybe it's the preacher in me, so often I hear stories and I'm like, man, like, doesn't that relate? This idea of a fall happening, this idea of being stuck in a place where you can't climb back up, being stuck in a place where there's nothing you can do about your current situation, but someone can come in and bring you out of it. And y'all, what I want you to understand is this, that you and I, Adam and Eve suffered a great fall. And their fall has been echoed throughout all of history where we are born with a sinful nature. And when we have the ability even to choose right from wrong, we will choose wrong. This is why you don't have to teach a kid to lie or teach a kid how to steal or teach a kid how to do the bad things. You have to teach them the exact opposite. But y'all, we were hopeless. Once again, as verse 12 even says, without hope and without God is where we were, but God saw us in our helpless state and he sent Jesus to save us. Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While you and I were actively rebelling against God, he even knew that and he chose to die for us anyway. You see, Jesus came and he died, he saved us from our sin by dying for our sin. And you might say, well, how could Jesus actually do this? Well, 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, for our sake, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Y'all, it's the greatest exchange you could ever imagine is Jesus came and he lived a perfect life, which you and I can't. He didn't miss the mark. He hit the mark in every regard. Y'all, you wanna know how Jesus really was God? You see, even in Jesus' day, the religious leaders were to go around and to be holy and righteous amongst people. The way Jesus showed he was holy is whenever he touched people, they became like he was, clean. They became healed. He would even touch them and they would be completely changed because of it. You see, Jesus lived a perfect life and he even said while he was on on earth, I'm here to reconcile the world back to God. I'm here to reconnect the world back to God. And Jesus lived a perfect life, which whenever he died on the cross, he could die for our sin. He put all of our sin on his back But the beauty of the gospel is he didn't stay dead. Three days later, he rose again from the grave, defeating sin with his life, defeating death with his resurrection, saying, look, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. The work is finished. Jesus has reconciled us. He has reconnected us back to God. So now we have the opportunity to have a relationship with him again. This is the good news of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Y'all, if you look at the beginning of of verses one through three, then you look at the end, you see how Paul brings these two truths together. We start saying that we are dead in our sin. Later on, he makes us alive with Christ. 
We start being separated from God because of our sin. We see later on we are raised up with him and we are seated with him. This is figurative, but one day we'll be actualized whenever we are with him. We start off having to pay for our sin. Then later on we see that he did this for us to pay for our sin and to show us the immeasurable riches of his grace for all of eternity. Y'all, in Jesus, you and I have the ability, we have the opportunity, let me put it that way, to have a right relationship with God. You and I have the opportunity to be reconnected with the creator of us. You and I have the opportunity to be reconciled to someone who we should have no reason to be reconciled to. And to live for him. Jesus says that in me you get life and you get life abundantly. And we'll look more at this next week. But y'all, in Christ, we've been given life. God loves us too much to leave us in our sin. Secondly, God sent Jesus to save us from our sin. And the third part of the good news is this. is God gives us salvation by grace through faith. God gives us salvation by grace through faith. Verses eight and nine say this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Notice what he's saying here. He's saying that that by grace you have been saved. This is a gift that's given to you. It's nothing that you can do in order to earn this. You have no boast in this matter because you did not work to receive it. You got to be more clear on this. For us, we have to recognize this. There's nothing you can do to earn salvation, and there's nothing that you cannot do to earn salvation. What I mean is this. You can't earn it by not doing the bad things. You can't earn it by not going to the parties, by not drinking, by not doing drugs, by not sleeping around, by not lying or cheating or stealing. You cannot earn your salvation. No way. But you also can't earn salvation by doing the good things. By coming to Awaken, by being involved in a church, by coming to small group, by reading your Bible, by praying, by becoming a deacon one day, by becoming a pastor, whatever it is, you cannot earn your salvation by doing the do's or by not doing the don'ts. We have no opportunity to earn it. And once again, the only way we contribute to this situation really is we're the ones who bring the sin which Christ had to die for in the first place. We can't earn it, which means we can't boast. One of my favorite movies I've ever seen is Batman Begins. And at the very beginning of Batman Begins, there's this setting where it's young Bruce Wayne. And he's out and he's playing tag uh, with his future girlfriend. He doesn't know it at the time, but he's out and he's playing tag. And, and what he d- ends up doing is he stands over a well that he doesn't realize is a well because grass had grown over it. Whenever he steps on the well, he actually falls through, falls all the way to the bottom of the well. If you've seen the movie, then you know he's stuck in the bottom of a well. He sees bats. That's actually where even the idea of Batman even came along. Well, the girl runs off, finds his dad. Bruce Wayne, his dad comes out, or Mr. Wayne, his dad comes out and ends up going, seeing him going down into the pit, getting Bruce, bring him up out and saving him. Now, I want you to imagine this. I want you to imagine what Bruce, what it would have been like for Bruce Wayne after he's stuck in a pit, his dad comes down, gets him, brings him out. If he were to go around the next day and say, you know what, do you see how impressive it was that I got out of that pit yesterday? Like, you see how cool that was? Like, I scaled the whole thing. You see what I did? Like, you see how I grabbed onto dad as he just held me the whole time because my arms basically were broke? Like, it wouldn't make any sense, right? It's like the kid that boasts about winning a championship at the end of the bench who never plays, right? Like, what are you, what are you boasting about? And, you know, this is what Paul is trying to help them understand is you have nothing to boast about because you did not do anything to earn your salvation. Salvation is the work of God. He alone can give us salvation. We cannot earn it, and this is why it's called a gift. 
You know, the word grace means we cannot earn it. We do not deserve it and we can never repay it. That's what grace is. That's what makes grace what it is. So how do we accept this offer of salvation? How do we accept this gift of grace? Ultimately, how do we enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ? And it's through faith. It's through placing your faith in Jesus. You'll see this in the same spot in Colossians chapter two. Whenever Paul, once again, is talking about, you used to be dead, but now you're reconciled to Christ through faith. We have to place our faith in Jesus in order to have a relationship with him. And the beauty of faith is it's the anti-work. Like faith isn't a work. And so what is true faith? Faith is whenever you have complete trust or place your complete confidence in someone or something. On a very minor scale, y'all, we exercise faith all the time. You exercise faith whenever you go to McDonald's, order a burger and take a bite without examining it first. Like we exercise faith in the, in the smallest of ways all the time. But truthfully, even whenever it comes to our lives, all of us have our faith in something. For some of us, I know tonight, our faith is in a career, that that's what's gonna bring me what I want in life. For some of us in here, our faith is getting into that program, getting into the med school, getting into the dental school, the law school, getting into that master's program. That's where our faith is placed. If I can just get here, For many of us, our faith is put in a future family. If I could just have a husband or a wife whenever I get married, like that's what's gonna bring me my joy and happiness. Some of us have faith in our own body image. You know, if I could just look a certain way, then I know I'm gonna be happy. Then I know I'm gonna have made it. Y'all, truth is all of us place our faith in something or someone. And what Paul is saying is the only way to have a relationship with Jesus is you have to place your faith in him. Put your complete trust, your complete confidence that what God says he did through his son, he actually did. That what Jesus did for you and for me, he actually did. And ultimately, you and I will only find what we're looking for whenever we place our faith in him, whenever we surrender our lives to him, whenever we say, you know what, I believe what you have to say about me. I believe the bad news. And I place the faith, I place my faith in the good news of Jesus Christ. Y'all, as we start the series, just the gospel, you have to recognize this and you have to understand that this is what everything hinges on, period. The gospel isn't just something that saves you, it is what it sustains you. We'll talk about that in the coming weeks. But we have to recognize that this is where it starts. Many of you struggle with your faith. Maybe is, is it because maybe that before tonight you would not have even been able to fully explain what does it mean? What is the gospel? What is, even is the good news of Jesus? And tonight is the night you need to set your life and you need to put your life in God's hands. You need to place your faith in him. You need to repent of your sin. You need to repent of who you are and surrender to who he says you can be in him. You know, for many of you tonight, you've spun your wheels with faith for so long. You know why? Because you put more faith in moralism than you have in Christ. You've had this idea that if I'm just good, if I just do these things, then I'll be accepted. That's not faith. That's more like what a religion looks like. Now, Christianity is a religion, but it's a religion based in a relationship. So often we think if I'm good, then I will be accepted. That's not true. Because I am accepted, I can be good. That's what the gospel teaches. And so for many of you tonight, the question you have got to ask yourself is, will I surrender? Will I place my faith in Jesus? Will I believe what he has to say about me? And will I place my faith in him? 
For others of you tonight, you have to answer this question. If you say, you know, America, I know I've placed my faith in Jesus. I know that I'm a follower of his. I'll ask you two questions. One, are you living it out? What does your life say? Does your life reflect what you say you believe? If you say you've given your life to Jesus, would your life say the same thing? Or does it look like you still live in the old you? Does it still look like you still live for your own ideals, your own dreams, your own whatever? Or do you live for Jesus? Do you have a relationship with him? If you do, does your life reflect what you say you believe? And secondly, to the person who says you're a follower of Christ, my question would be, how much do you share the good news? If it wasn't meant to be shared, it would not be called news. It's good news. And so how much do you share it? You know, I'm always challenged whenever I read Paul, who wrestles with all these different theological things. But you see 1 Corinthians 9, what does he say? I do everything I can in order to win some. I become like them. I become in this area. I go to this area. I do this area so that I might win people to Jesus Christ. His main aim and goal and desire in life was to win people to Jesus, period. And the question is, if you're a follower of Jesus, do you share? Do you really believe that the bad news is bad news? Or do you really just think, ah, you know, I've got the gospel, oh well. I'm gonna challenge you tonight, wherever you're at, How does the gospel need to challenge you tonight? What do you need to leave with tonight? How do you need to respond to the message tonight? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for this gospel truth. God, we thank you so much that we see all throughout scripture, God, just reminders of how sinful we really are. God, I pray that all of us in here tonight would recognize that that you have done a great work through your son. I pray that all of us tonight would be amazed once again by the gospel, that it wouldn't be old to us, that it wouldn't seem in some ways irrelevant to us because we've been there and we've heard that. God, I pray that all of us tonight are reminded of what you've done through your son. God, help us once again. Say, our lives are yours. Help us once again say, we're gonna share this. And Lord, for those who don't know you, Lord, I pray tonight would be the night that they'd say, I wanna place my faith in Jesus as the Lord and Savior of my life. Lord, I ask all these things in your name. Amen. I just wanna ask you as usual to respond however you feel led to do so. Maybe tonight you just need to sit there and you need to really contemplate. Do I know Jesus? Do I have a relationship with him? Have I really placed my faith in him? And if not, will you do so? The Bible doesn't give us really crazy specifics other than this. You need to repent and surrender your life to him. Call him Lord. Say, God, my life is yours. For those of you who say you are a follower of Jesus, how do you need to respond to this tonight? Maybe you need to recognize areas of your life that aren't lining up. Maybe you need to just really wrestle with and repent for why you don't share this message with others. But however you want to respond, stand, sing, sit, and pray. Whatever you need to do, do what you need to do. I'll be up front if anybody wants to talk.